Hey everybody, I'm super excited to be back. This is episode, I think, 392. I am really glad to be closing in on 400. I believe we will finish 400 before the end of this year. Um, if not, I'm going to make sure we finish it for the before the end of the year. So um, I'm really excited to have my friend David Mooney on. He was at camp. He does a ton of other things. I met him through my other friend, Amy, not Amy, who's here, but another friend, Amy, who was doing a conference on parenting and and it blew my mind. I don't even have kids, but this was so amazing to me of what we were learning. We've got a bunch of other people that are joining us. I'm super excited to have Jason Karn and John Ingalls and Ara. I'm glad to have you guys in the audience too. So feel free to pop things into the chat. But David blew my mind when I was at um, Amy's conference and um, and he was talking about a part of the brain. So, oh, I should probably tell you what David does. Uh, David is a psychotherapist in Ireland, but he teaches people all around the world. And he's done things uh, about co-regulating, which you may have no idea what that is because I didn't. And so there's something there we're going to talk about. But it was really so much of an entrepreneur's brain. We we have a lot of fears and that are maybe unprecedented or unfounded or things. And I love the way he explains the brain and how the the system works and how our fears can uh, it made it so it was like oh i got this now so this was like a huge eye opener just a conversation and then i was super excited that he said yes to camp and i was super excited that he said yes to this to doing the podcast so david i'm sure that i did not do a great um intro but if you could fill them in you've been an entrepreneur you've helped entrepreneurs you've done different um you've pivoted and and helped and worked with different kinds of people but can you kind of give them an idea of who you are and what your journey's been great thank you dan first thing to say is congratulations 392 amazing this is so important to take moments to celebrate. And we'll talk a bit more about that later, about the neurobiology and the feedback loops of celebrating what might appear to be straightforward. Well, 392 podcasts is not straightforward, but the just taking pause to celebrate is really, really uh, good nourishment for our, how we're wired in the neurobiology and which in turn affects how we behave. So I've been, fa- so well done. That's well done. I've been fascinated by this question of the relationship between behavior and our actions and how we're wired. So how we are wired, meaning our physiology, our biology, our neural pathways, how the brain works, and how that impacts how we feel, what we think, how we behave and what we are able to do in the world, right? And the, the relationship between the two. So that's that has fascinated me for decades. And I started off uh, with a business degree. So it was my primary degree with languages and uh, got the nuts and bolts of business and the nuts and bolts that really helped me later on to be an entrepreneur. But it doesn't actually train you to be an entrepreneur, a business degree, not one bit. <laughs> what trains you to an entrepreneur, uh, to be an entrepreneur 
is actually taking risk and exploring your relationship with risk and failure and um, and how to create sustained action. So these are the kind of things we're going to talk about today. And later on, I um, worked with various groups, kind of vulnerable groups like refugees, asylum seekers, and got really, really interested in my own personal uh, mental health and really interested in people's mental health and what affects people's mental health, which brought me to psychotherapy. Spent a long time um, in various forms of psychotherapy myself and then trained as a psychotherapist. And then uh, from that branched off into more somatic intelligence, more the neurobiology and the relationship between emotions, the somatic experience and cognition and how those three speak to each other and how they influence who we are, how we self-identify and how we are in the world. And I've um, gone through various pivots in my vision and project and giveaway to the world. And uh, one that may be kind of interesting to start off with is I, in our, because it's in Ireland, I developed an alcohol-free social space, which is an alcohol-free nightclub, um, drug-free nightclub, obviously. And um, I was finding that I was drinking less alcohol as I became more, uh, got more support with my mental health. So I didn't need the, that kind of, um, you know, I didn't need that to kind of push down or work with, not to, to say that that's the only function of alcohol, but certainly in Ireland, there's a lot of places where that's used to manage things that are overwhelming in the system. So the more and more I uh, got to know my inner landscape, the less and less I needed that, but there was no social space. So I developed social spaces in Ireland, which eventually um, we had a project running for about 10 years. We had about 20 people working with us and it was all over Ireland. And we had about, um, I think it was close to about 70,000 people who were engaged in, in that in various ways. We were in Paris, we were in London, lots of different places we were in. So I did that for 10 years. And then as I got a little bit older, the late nights were, <laughs> were taking their toll on the body. So um, I let that go, passed on some of the project and pivoted to more um, smaller groups, working with uh, all that I had gathered over the years to do with somatic intelligence, to do with how to be resilient and sustain yourself in your entrepreneurial offering in the world in whatever shape or form that may be. So I worked with a real broad, and still do, a real broad spectrum of people who um, are looking to you know, increase their resilience and increase their capacity to really follow through with their vision or with their entrepreneurial vision. And now we you, wait, to- can I ask you a question real quick? Do you, was so obviously in Ireland, you saw that there was a problem with, um, or people didn't have another outlet if they didn't want to drink, there wasn't a social thing. So there, this was something you created. Do you find that with entrepreneurs, there is a problem in the follow through, they might have these big visions, but then they really get caught up in these, um, was this the problem that you you saw you were able to solve? Just like the 
no place to have fun, no social. Um, do you know what I mean? I think, yes, I think I know what you're, what you're getting at. I think one of the things I've seen over about 20 years of being an entrepreneur myself and work with entrepreneurs is that the, in some ways the, the, the motivation and vision part doesn't seem to be a problem a lot of the time. Like, of course, getting really articulate and really clear about uh, how to manifest that and how to follow through on that um, can be a challenge. But the actual vision itself, it's one of the things that I guess differentiates entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs is people who really have a clear passion towards uh, something that is maybe not a, a niche that's not quite um, met in some particular way. And what the, the big challenge I see again and again and again and again is twofold. One, and they're related. One is people's relationship with failure. And the second is um, the consistency of small actions in the direction of without overwhelm. So people um, maybe not having a map of their own window of tolerance. So what's too much? And then what slips down with too little action where there's, but actually with entrepreneurs, it's more, <laughs> it's more the higher end. It's more the end of um, overwhelm and burnout that I see. Mm. Um, so, so it's often not, not really motivation. That's the problem. <laughs> but it's how to regulate. So, so shall I talk a little bit about the neurobiology? Sure. Yes, please. This was a real game changer for me as an entrepreneur. This absolutely was a game changer. And, and the more I share it with people who are entrepreneurial, um, when they get it, there's a light bulb moment and it, it can be really a before and after in some ways. Um, not to say that has to, this could be just a first introduction for people. So um, about uh, eight years ago, I heard about this um, particular track of study that was developed by um, a psychiatrist and a neurobiologist named Stephen Porges. And it's called the polyvagal theory. And the vagal in meaning nerve, so it's the vagus system, the nervous system, it's basically the circuitry in the body that speaks to the brain. And then the brain is like the CPU, the processing units and creates a response. But the actual vagal, the, the nervous system is the interface with the world. So that's the listening part of our being. So that goes right through the spine and it, it goes out into every organ of the body. It goes right into the pacemaker of the heart. So it regulates our, uh, the heartbeat, which is fundamental to how much oxygen gets into the cells, which is fundamental to our energy levels. <laughs> it goes into the liver, kidneys, goes, goes everywhere in all the vital organs, goes right into the brain and goes into the ears. And that's quite, you think, why would, why would that be? Depending how the nervous system is, it, it, it shapes the inner ear to different frequencies. So we can hear things and not hear things. So I'll, tell, I'll explain why this is important in a moment. Um, it, will, it goes into the eyes, shapes the eyes, so it influences what and how we see. So it's quite a fundamental 
piece of kit in our body, <laughs> a piece of tech in the body. This has been evolving for billions of years. And there are three really important phases of the evolution of this nervous system that straddles the spine and spreads out. So poly meaning wandering and vagus meaning nerve, meaning the, the interface. So the first place of evolution is called the dorsal. That's more than the base of the spine. So you, you might be wondering why we're talking about biology here in, a, in an entrepreneur's um, context, but it will become clear. It will become really clear in a moment. And I can tell you personally how this information has informed me and how has it has changed me as an entrepreneur and then how it may be useful for you to know this. So the first place is the dorsal. That's then the base of the spine. The second is the, the, the mid-range. That's more the, you could call it the animal part. And the top part is the ventral part. Okay. So the, the base part, this was the first part to evolve in our ancestors, all the way back to lizards and reptilian. And the way that the nervous system would respond, it would, it would listen through our ears through our eyes it would, it would, these are our listening antennae through the skin even and get information about are things safe or not fundamental are things safe or not here so if it gets cues that there's a predator around the dorsal would go into freeze play dead so you know like a lizard just go Chunk, plays dead and that me that the reason for that is the predator loses interest because the predator is evolved to chase and to catch. So we have inherited this. This is still with us. This response in our nervous system is still wired into the system of our nervous system. The second is the fight or flight. So this is when we evolved into four-legged, into animals, and we developed the capacity to run away or to use claws or to you know, fight whatever predator or whatever danger might be there. So in let's just go straddle the first two for a moment. So in the dorsal, what that means is when the animal goes into play dead, and it goes into freeze, immobilizes. What it does is it starts to shut down non-essential functions in the body. And that allows for uh, less sensation if it's, if it's been attacked, so it can still play dead. And it also allows the essential functions to stay online. Right. So why is that important now? Well, that's important for a few different reasons. One is um, this, this is a really fundamental the way we respond in the world. So there are lots of places where we may feel safe. We may feel unsafe. There are lots of places we don't even recognize that this comes online. Why is that? Because this is not based on cognition. This is based on a deeper response level that is a direct conversation between the nervous system, the, that, that wiring, and the, 
the brain that is not the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is about reason, understanding, cognition, just knowing, oh, yeah, I get it. So that's why. So you make the link. This is, this is before that. And it's what's called neuroception. Neuroception is that what is happening under the surface all the time. This never, ever sleeps. This is always online, even when we're sleeping. That's why alarm clocks work, because the ears are always open and ready and listening. So this is important information because we are constantly responding to given situations. We're constantly, there's a constant feedback loop between us and the people we're with, our, envir our environment, and it has a fundamental, profound impact to our energy levels, to um, what parts of our, what organs are online, what organs are offline. And if we feel in threat, one of the basic ways that we can respond is go shut down, numb out, kind of goof off. So we can, these can be very subtle responses. You know, you know those moments where you go, oh, I suddenly lost a couple of seconds. That's very, that's a natural thing. That's, that's the neuroception of the dorsal. That's what that is. That's a very, very um, natural thing to do, to have that moment. It's not, you know, we, we create stories on top of the basic neurobiological response. And I'll talk about stories in a bit and how that prefrontal cortex relates and, and is in a relationship with these under the table responses that we have all the time. So we, we know this is true. This is, this is basic physiology. This is basic neurobiology that this happens all the time. So the second phase is the fight or flight. So this is, um, so say for example, if you have a stressful situation, just with the dorsal and you go, oh, I can't do it. Oh my God, I just can't do it. It's too much. That's the dorsal. That is a dorsal response. And we, of course, we create layers of story on top of that, but that is a dorsal where we just suddenly lose all our energy drains away. So would this, would this be like in a, say as entrepreneurs, as we're doing a creative project, a client comes to us and they have gone beyond scope and we're just like, oh, I can't, I just can't take it. Or they want another revision or another change, or they, they've decided to go a different direction. And we're just at a point of like, I don't know if I can do this. I might have to hire somebody else. Like is because we're just like, it wasn't what our expectation was, or is it because we feel like we're really threatened? Like our, so I get, so that, that thing of, well, I need to hire some, maybe I'll need to hire someone else. That's the, the top part of the nervous system, giving you healthy, healthy responses and healthy choices. So, so that's fantastic. <laughs> Great to hear that you have that online. So, so I'll talk about that in a bit, about the ventral, about opening the possibility for a safe connection and cooperation. And, and when there's choice in the system, you know, you're heading towards the healthy parts of the nervous system, but it's more, I can't do this. I think I'll give up. This is too much. It's more when we start to hit the threshold of what we feel we have the capacity for. That's when we start to head towards our window of tolerance. And the window of tolerance is basically this place, this mid-range where we feel, oh, I can do this. 
and I don't have to over push myself, right? So I'm stimulated enough, I'm engaged enough, but I don't have to over push. I don't have to override the natural energy levels in my system. Um, and when you have that thought, which as entrepreneurs is, I think is fantastic. Maybe I need help here. That's great. That's when the ventral vagal is online. So <clears throat> the, the, the mid-range response to that, where you get that kind of scenario, would be either pushback, like, why are you doing this? So that's where you're heading more into the fight response, where it's more from a place of self-protection. So I need to protect by fighting. So that's where we can end up <laughs> in arguments or go into flight. I'm out of here. I, you just, your attention turns somewhere else or you just slam down the phone or whatever it might be. That's what, or you, you, you find that you're just not responding to the emails. You're gone into flight, right? So this is the animal two choices of the, of the mid range of the nervous system. And that's when we evolved into um, four-legged and we could have a bit more choice rather than just play dead. We could either go towards and fight or flee. So they're all wonderful choices, but we're complex beings, right? So we this the, often these responses were deeply adaptive to in, in nature as solo creatures. But we as humans cooperate in big numbers. And there's a few reasons why we have the capacity to do that. The, one of the reasons is how we're hardwired in the top part, the most recent part of the nervous system, which is the myelinated part of the, of the vagal system. And myelin is like, a, you know, the wiring around. So you have the wire, it's a copper wire, and you have the insulation. So around the nerves, there's this thing called myelin. And the more that we exercise that particular part of the nervous system, the thicker that insulation will get and the more information can pass through and the more we hang out in that part of the nervous system. So this is the third part, the latest part, um, more recent part, which was adapted through mammals. And mammals are creatures that cooperate in quite big numbers. You see dolphins hanging out together. You see, you know, lots of different mammals hanging out in groups um, as we do in humans. And in this part of the nervous system that developed, there was much more focus on the, you know, the muscles around the, the nervous system, the focus of the muscle around the face, around the mouth, around the years so that we could communicate much more with each other. And the reason that was important to develop that is when we uh, cooperated in bigger numbers, we could have sentries, we could have lookouts so that we didn't always have to be hypervigilant about our surroundings. We could have a few doing certain jobs. This is like, uh, you know, people taking roles in an organization. <laughs> So we could let go of that responsibility. We didn't have to, you know, spin all the plates, look after the whole show. And in, in this place, we uh, really developed the capacity to co-regulate. And this is really interesting 
Hey, tell them what co-regulate means and why it's so important, which you're probably going to do anyway, but explain that because I had not heard that and I didn't understand it, but I love this. This is super cool. So basically, Diane, our nervous systems are in conversation beyond our words. And that, that happens in a few different ways through our facial expression, through the tone of our voice, not just the words, what's called the prosody of our voice. So when you're, when our voices kind of sing, go up and down, it gives information to the nervous system that, okay, this is safe. This is okay. Because if there's a monotone or if there's um, kind of a high pitch or monotone, either of those two, the, the nervous system kind of goes, gets kind of the, you know, hairs in the back of your neck. You're kind of like, well, something, something not right. Or you feel a bit uncomfortable. That is the nervous system just going a little bit on alert because when the voice has prosody, when it goes up and down like that, the, the vocal cords are more relaxed and it's that more kind of um, singing communication. It's more relaxed communication. So that's when uh, say we were in herd and there would be these little chirpings between these little kind of telling the, the whole collective that it's okay. We're good. You can graze, you can hang out, you can have a peach. All good. <laughs> There's no, no danger around. So it gave us, as beings the possibility to relax more, to feel more safe and to feel more connected. And also another way our nervous systems are, um, when you're in proximity more so, this is, this is rather when you're in the room with someone. And this is one thing that we often miss with the whole online communications is that when we're in the room together, our nervous systems are um, speaking through neuroception. So they're actually co-regulating. So let me give you an example, a clear example of how this works. There was this study done about eight years ago where they had people together in a room and they had, they had the, you know, the pacemakers that they can check their heart rate and the, the rate of their breathing and the rate of their heartbeat. The heartbeat can tell you if someone is in arousal, if someone is more in the relaxed, the sympathetic part, or if they're in hyperarousal, if they're over their threshold, they're stressed, basically. That's, that's when you go outside the window of your own tolerance, you're into stress. That manifests lots of different ways, insomnia, uh, headaches, da, 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 the list goes on that, that your body will tell you when you're stressed. So they put these heart monitors on people and they gave them various exercises to do, like breathing exercises. <clears throat> And they gave them various, very, very simple uh, somatic exercises to do. And they together. were in, they were in the room together. It, how many right. people? We're all, in, we're all in the room together. There was forty. Okay, 40 wow, that's people. a lot of people. Okay, a lot of people, and they want they wanted to have a threshold so they the data would kind of be a bit more solid. And they did this quite a number of times. So what they found was at the beginning, the heart rates were all over the scale, up, down, in, out. Because, you know, people are arriving in different states of being. And then, of course, their systems changed um, uh, throughout the time that they were there. But what they found was when they gave them collective activities to do together and the parameters were really clear, and what they were asked to do was really clear. And then specific breathing exercises like five to eight breathing, breathe in for five, hold for two, exhale for eight. 
that that regulates the nervous system. Um, why does that do that? Just very briefly, that regulates the nervous system. When you breathe in for five and hold for two and exhale for eight, when the exhale is longer than the inhale, it gives a message back to the nervous system that it's like a message back to the nervous system that we're not needing to rush here where we can, we can really exhale. We can let the exhale be long. So then the nerves, and this is, this is not uh, storytelling. This is more about neurobiology. So it tells the nervous system, okay, we can relax the heartbeat here. We're okay. We can, we can cool the systems. We can cool the, everything that's happening inside and we can just rest. We can be in that more restful place. So they gave them exercises to do like this. What they found was after a threshold of about two hours, everyone's heartbeat was in sync. So the whole room had, had a very, very similar heartbeat. And what they discovered from this is, wow, we didn't tell these people to do this. We, there's, um, and when they, because they, they did a, um, another um, study, a similar thing where they had the heart monitors on, but gave them different things to do in the room. And it was, it was very different. But because they were in a collective, one direction collective, they found that um, their heartbeat started to co-regulate. So this is really interesting information. So say if you're with um, so like a customer who's really stressed or um, so like someone who you're looking to do a deal with, the more you can tone your own nervous system, the more you can um, inhabit and hang out in the ventral part of the nervous system, the more that the person you're with is likely to orientate towards the tone of your nervous system. So the, the nervous system will tone up mostly. And this is great because without even using words, you can put someone at ease. So my, so my father was a, was a genius at this without knowing anything about neurobiology or the, nerve, or the polyvagal nervous system. He worked, he ran a business in Ireland um, and was quite successful, had 500 people working for him and had um, Tom Cook from Apple over and people were getting very nervous about him being there. And, and he just, he was just the most, my father was the most relaxed person in the room. And of course, Tom Cook gravitated to him and within five minutes the whole room was at ease so this capacity to tone our nervous system your nervous system can be toned it's like a muscle it, it can be toned and the more that we can know about this part of our being and and we find ways to tone it and i'll give you a couple of examples of how that's done the more that um, that's infectious. That's deeply infectious. <laughs> that can um, really influence how another feels in your company. You know, some people that you're you're with, gosh, oh, love being in our company. It's it's most likely that they're in the ventral parts of the nervous system. So that's in that in that co-regulating, obviously, for if you're doing working with someone, it 
it helps put them at ease because then they're relaxed, right? They're not worried that somebody's taking advantage of them or somebody. Right. But and they're how, less but likely how, to slip into that fight or flight or. Yeah. Right. But your dad wasn't like, okay, everybody, let's do a breathing exercise, right? Your dad wasn't like that, but he did other things that made it so that Tim Cook felt like a, a normal person, right? Mm. It was whoever he was with your dad treated the same. It was, um, it was like he was introducing a friend, right? What, what are some other, I mean, I can think of so many situations that this would come in handy, but think about if, uh, we were interviewing a new client. The client could be in that, like, oh my goodness, is this another, you know, creative that's going to take me, you know, the other person who I hired for my website couldn't give me this, right? I, I've, mm. I've been in situations. So how would, um, how would someone come into that or start toning? What would be an exercise yeah, right. we could start to do that with? Yeah. So, okay. So um, one of the fundamental things is breathing. That's a really key um, voluntary thing that we that, that that you can do in your being that has profound influence in your own nervous system. So, so when when you ask how how can you um, influence another, it's basically how to befriend your own nervous system. So it's a U-turn. It's how you befriend your own nervous system. So, so that you don't get pulled into the same tone of the nervous system that they're in so that you can hang out in your own ventral. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they will um, be pulled right into that. You know, some of these behaviors and, and um, patterns of someone's nervous system are, are deeply ingrained. So, you know, we, we, we can't completely transform someone's nervous system, but, but you, what you can do is unblend from their neuroception, unblend from wherever they're at. And so that's it, really key. Yeah. Is this like something that obviously if you were going into a big meeting, it's not like you're going to practice and be prepared to do it for two hours. We put, should probably take some baby steps mm-hmm. and start because it, since it's a U-turn, we have to start thinking about, what it's going to be like, what would be a preparatory thing if we knew we were going to have a big meeting or a big pitch or something where something uh, was really, we would be excited about it, but also nervous. They would be excited, but nervous. What would be some things that, again, maybe our old story, and this is one of the things that I love about what you teach or what you've taught me is that I can rewrite that story, that myelin, that all that, uh, insulation i can mm. if it you had described it as a path a well-worn path in the in a field and mm-hmm. that now i'm gonna is that the same kind of like we're practicing we're just going a little bit on the path so we can see celebration from that we didn't like like if i'm uh with a friend that always makes me feel bad or like maybe that's not a really good friend but um do you know what i mean like a situation that i tend to not uh, stand my ground on. And maybe I just need to go for just a little bit. I know that people have talked about if they're trying a new habit, they just go into the gym and they celebrate. I just made it to the gym. I'm going home. Right. And then the next time they're going to get on a machine and do five minutes and then they're going to go home. So it's these tiny little steps, but how would someone prep for this, for this big pitch, this big meeting, or get better at toning that, um, U-turn, 
Yeah, beautiful. I mean, it's some of the things that you've said are in there. So I'll, I'll kind of pick on, on pick up on some of the threads that you mentioned there. So, you know, as far back as Socrates, he said, um, repetition is the mother of skill. So repetition, repetition, repetition. And that is like you were saying, Diane, it's, it's like every time we travel down a particular um, thought or practice, we uh, are the footprints of our attention in that part of the neural network creates a pathway. And every time we go down, it deepens and entrenches that. So that when we're in proximity to that or there's some outside stimulus, like the Pavlon, um, the, just the external stimulus, when we have that, we, we tilt into the worn path. So it's really good to be curious about um, how you do, how you store yourself. We are the, the other reason we're able to hang out in such big numbers and collaborate as humans, like no other species, is that we create story together. So we create meaning and story about different things. So we are a collection. Our identity is a collection of the stories we have inherited and that we continue to tell ourselves. So this is on a this is on a cultural collective level and this is on an individual and nuclear family level. So these stories are really uh, good to be curious about how I story myself. Who is David? What am I good at? What am I not good at? What am I shit at? What am I, <laughs> you know, these places where I start to tilt into negative self-talk. It's really good to slow that down and be curious about the, the tilting point. So what is it that makes me go into negative self-talk? And what are the scenarios that make me go into negative self-talk? And these are really, really good. Or the other one is, um, what's, you know, what's, what's my worst fear about going into this room and things going badly? So to unpack that in a, in a, in a curious way is really important because um, if you're going into that room frightened of the worst thing that's going to happen, your nervous system is going to be pumping and you're going to be in the fight or flight or freeze. You know, so your, your nervous system is going to be on hyperdrive. And, and the thing to remember is that the nervous system is, it's like the knee jerk. It's, it responds directly to and will directly influence. But the good news is we, when our prefrontal cortex is online. So what that means is when our reason is present and we have object, we have some kind of objectivity we say, okay, I'm not going to die from this experience. That's a good start. <laughs> so you have a bit of breathing room to explore. Okay, so um, I might be stressed here. And how can I tend to this stress? So that is often way before the fact, like you said, is to walk yourself into that room way before. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. One is 100% do it in company, scenario out the various things and give yourself permission to fail miserably and to do it as badly as possible and let your friend say, well done, brilliant, fantastic, that's brilliant. Because the, we're, we're so, the, the way we are built, we're so hungry for feedback. 
We are so hungry for feedback. We are, our biology, our physiology needs feedback way more than you imagine it does, way, way more. We need feedback all the time because when we were in nature, we were constantly in communication with each other. We're akin with the, our little tribe about safety, not safety, safety, not safety. Is it okay? Is it not okay? We were in constant communication. We're in far less communication now than we were then, because we were in until um, 10,000 years ago, we were in small packs of 20, or 20 to 30. And then 10, that was between 100,000 years and 10,000 years. So these small packs as humans even, even let go of animals, these small packs of 20 and 30, there was firing communication and feedback loops between us all the time. So it was only at the beginning of the agricultural revolution when uh, we started to, you know, develop towns, cities, da, 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 that actually paradoxically our networks shrunk and we spend much less time in these small networks of constant feedback loop. So that was to the detriment of our nervous system because, because our nervous system is like waiting for feedback from our kin, from our people, from the people we're with. So we, we tend to not hang out in groups of 20, 30, and even it's more accentuated now because of the whole coronavirus wave. So there's even a shrinking again of our little pods, our little network. So, so cultivating a safe one, two, three people that you can go and do trial test and fail and fail and fail and fail and have the feedback. Yeah, well done. You tried. That's brilliant. These small moments of feedback of it's okay. You're safe. You've done it. You, you might think you messed up, but that, that that's a subjective experience because your nervous system has gone 90 miles an hour. So you, you really are, we're so thirsty and hungry for this feedback from other humans that to keep getting places where you can, this is what I do all the time. I do it with my wife. I do it with two close friends. I do it with my supervisor. I do it in lots of different places. Be curious about places where you can land in practice because repetition is the mother of skill. Repetition creates um, what you place your attention on habitually. So if you, if you scenario out this just yourself in your own mind, guess what? You're going to end up in the places where you most fear because, because, you know, that's what we needed to give attention to when we were in the wild. We needed to be, give our attention to what we were most afraid of. We had to, until we came into group and we were hanging out together and we had those sentries and we kept getting the feedback that it's safe, it's safe, it's okay, it's safe, it's okay. So we need that as humans. We need that feedback loop again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> We need people to cheer us on. We need cheerleaders. And that is not to override reality. That is just to affirm that we can be in safe connection rather than be in self-protection all the time. Because when we're in self-protection, our creative capacity is shrunk. Our creative capacity lives in the mid-range and prefrontal cortex. And that only comes online, we're in the ventral vagal. We're in that place of safe connection in the mammalian part where there's more, it's like the supercomputers online, you know, where we, we can network and we can be um, in the soup of creativity of failure, 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 failure. Oh, that was good. Failure, 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 failure. Oh, there's a good one. Failure, 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 failure. <laughs> so 
developing our relationship with failure is also important because we all have stories about who we are when we fail, about what it means when we fail. I'm going to be left. I'm going to be isolated. I'm going to never be able to do this if I fail. So one story I heard when I was doing uh, the School of Social Entrepreneurs, which is a magnificent organization all around Europe, and I did a, a, a year scholarship with them a good few years ago. And the person who was leading it, um, he developed about 15 different amazing projects um, in, in the UK and around Europe. And he told us a story that when he was doing his first big project that really meant a lot to him, which was um, creating uh, social hubs in, in towns all across the UK, um, he had to go to politicians and speak to them about this. And he, he developed the plan for about six months before he went to pitch it. And he had a 10-minute pitch. And after 10 minutes, the, the politician was with says, no way, no chance, never going to work, forget it. And he was desolate. He said, oh, he was crushed. He was like, oh, my God, I spent six months doing this, all, all that time wasted. And he had a mentor <laughs> who had developed this school of social entrepreneurs. And he said, you need to really pivot your relationship, but no, you, re you really need to be uh, use that as kind of a wedge in the door to say, well, okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Can you tell me why, why this won't work for you? Can you, can you please take the time? I really appreciate your clarity. Can you take the time. So he went back to the politician and the politician said, okay, you've given it all that time. I thought, here's 15 reasons why this is not going to work. Really clear, solid reasons. And he said, thank you. Thank you so much. So he went away to work on these different reasons, <laughs> came back to the politician, and the politician gave him four. He says, look, forget it. Four more big reasons. He said, thank you. Can you tell me why this won't work? So it was rather, it was not so much that he was getting a no, but it was his relationship with the no that had changed and his relationship with the perception of failure that had changed. There's so much in the cultural norms that it's like a tightrope. It's like a tightrope. We see it in with famous people. They're like on this mega tightrope. And if they make one move, that's out. And, and that, these kind of uh, iconic figures, um, which kind of get elevated, 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 and trashed down, that, that's not nothing for us as entrepreneurs. Those stories are potent. When we see that again and again happening, something um, that it's not for nothing, that has an influence on us. So, so what's really important is to be curious about where that's landing and what your relationship with no is, what your relationship, what it means to fail, what your relationship, what it means to be seen to fail. And it's so important to company yourself with people who can cheerlead your failures. It's so important. It's deeply important to have that small, close-in, knit uh, group of people so that these out outside cultural stories of what is and isn't okay, what failure does and what it doesn't do, you know, excommunicates you from the, the society. 
that, that they'll have less influence that we can, we don't have to ingest them as our own. We can really unblend our own experience and our own meaning around failure because failure is the, is the ground of creativity. It's where it's, it creates the fertile ground, you know, and, and the more we can learn from the places that we don't meet the standard, uh, the more freedom and creativity is available for us to take that next step that may be in a different direction. One thing when you're talking about this, I, I was having a conversation earlier today and I was thinking about how, you know, I have a thought in my head about failure with a particular client, maybe. And this is a client I've had for like 12 or 14 years. This is a long-term relationship. If I mess up once in, you know, in the, maybe in the beginning, they might not have kept me, but there is something about that that let's say that group of 20 that we've bonded. If somebody fails, we're not just thrusting them out. There's been this long-term kind of connection. And I know some, some designers don't um, always connect. Uh, they think that it's just always a first date. And I'm like, Ooh, I want clients that are going to be long-term relationships with me so that that failure isn't so terrible. And it's more of a partnership. Like you're saying in these groups where, Hey, it's your turn to watch. I'm going to, I've got you on this. Like I'm going to keep learning. I've seen, seen something I'm going to be able to get and help you. But it's funny because it is about the relationship in that 20 or 30 people and they all had a job or they have, you know, shared responsibilities but when we're working with a client, it's really the same thing. If they're, re- if we are not just uh, taking uh, their idea and we're not doing any kind of creative thought, there's going to be failure in creative thought, in creative exploration. So I love that we can take this, but I think that there's something missing if we think, hey, this is a one and done. I, if I don't do this one thing, I'm out, right? And I just don't think that that's most, most people are not wanting that. Most people do want this relationship because they're building trust. So that's, these are the people in your, in your 20 or 30 that you're going to go to, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the, the whole thing of survival of the fittest, which is like at all costs, survival of the fittest, I need to be in competition with everyone around me um, is deeply misunderstood that darwinian uh like it was so it's so deeply misunderstood that concept they you know and there's lots and lots coming out now recently in terms of ecology and systems and um how actually plants do not just compete against each other there's deep cooperation through the mycelium network there's deep relationship there's deep um communication through trees through plant plant lives and you know older trees will when they're dying they'll give away older nutrients to the younger trees if there's a sick tree then the other trees will pass nutrients through i mean the whole thing has been so misunderstood that it's actually to the detriment of us as humans because you know there's this deeply ingrained thing of like i have to survive at all costs and i'll push everyone out of my way and and i need to do this on my own and (laughs) i need to kind of fight for this. And yes, I'm not saying that it's all rosy in nature, but there is far more cooperation 
than we have storied in recent generations. So the, so the idea of cooperation, even with your clients and even because that is, that is the key, is the relational field between you and your clients, you and your customers. That's the absolute ground of success is that under the grand mycelium network, that kind of <laughs> building up the communication pathways so that it's it's not just this idea of perfection ideation. If we have this idea that we have to be perfect, now this is not to say that we uh, loosen our standards, but when we have this idea of perfection and we strive to perfection ideation, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're setting ourselves up for the nervous system to completely fried and you know to overpromise and underdeliver. So, so the the thing of being really curious about your customers and being really curious about the place where what the expectations they have, and yes, looking to meet them, but it's not just in the list of did I need this done? What was happening between those two men was a, there was a relationship building. He could see, oh my God, you're coming back and you're pretty, because that's what he said to him in the end. You were seriously persistent and dedicated to this and you're, you're not taking no for an answer. He says, I've no more no's. And it, so it wasn't just to do with the list. It was to do with the fact that they were building relationship. So yes, I totally agree. It's, it's very much about the relational field. Very, very much so. And there is, it, it's so important to invest in that so as well as the delivery of what's been asked. So one, he had to have a different relationship with no, right? Instead of taking it as a, I, you're not good enough. This thing you've made isn't good enough. It, it now became something, I think as uh, creatives, a lot of us are designers in here. We get feedback just that you are saying that, that we are hungry for this feedback, this constant feedback. I totally agree. Um, and I think with students, as Anne has her students watching, um, we tend to be at the when we're in the beginning stages. So if we're pitching something to uh, 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 to get money, an investor or something, right? It we're in, It's the first time we're pitching this idea. It can be very much like, oh my gosh, they're going to, you know, if they say no, then it's about me. My idea was terrible. And really that's not it um, at all. It's just about refining. So it's about building that relationship of trust, but it's also what can I do when a student shows me something, I'm telling him how to fix it or how to adjust what was his customer, the customer's customer, what would they want to see and give me some proof? Because I think some of it's they need to prove something to me. I mean, not to me, to the client. You need to come in with your research. But but like if um, a student can just be just, pummeled if I'm at all, like I'm just giving them feedback on things. Hey, your type's not centered or it's, or it is centered or it's not big enough to read or whatever. And it's just as crushing. So it's mm -hmm. about maybe doing these exercises of maybe it, maybe it's for me, it's like making something up and it's like, um, they have to, they have to get a no and it's not even, it doesn't mean anything. It's not about who they are, but so much, so many of us have had tons of practice getting bad feedback. So I'm actually mm -hmm. welcome. I'm like, Oh, it's, I want to make it better. I want to make it better, worse than I want to feel good because I know that when I make it, 
whatever it is, when I refine it and I make it to be what that customer needs and what that customer is ideally wanting, then it is going to be better. But that relationship with myself, it's, it's not about me. It's just that this thing didn't meet what they needed. So let's make it neat. Make instead of it being just like, I'm done, right? The, the, the freeze or the fight or flight, right? Yeah, it's one of the signs of maturity, delayed gratification. <laughs> and, it, and it's so important to, like you said, sometimes it's inevitable that we meet those places where we feel totally crushed and totally, you know, crestfallen and God, that didn't happen. And I really, especially if, if someone is starting out, and I know there may be some students listening to this, totally get it, totally get it, you know, that, that first no, that, that kind of first place of, um, that's not, that doesn't meet the standard. Just know that that is not the first time you're hearing this. Yes, in this context. And yes, it matters to you. So it's going to really hurt. But this is the one of the reasons it hurts is from probably years ago, getting particular messages about what was and wasn't okay, what is and what isn't okay in terms of your creativity, in terms of your capacity, in terms of your talent, in terms of your tenacity, in terms of your courage to step out and do something now. That can be in the familial. So good to be curious about the messages that you received. So you can receive messages in a few ways directly from one of your caregivers or how they spoke to each other, how they spoke to the world, how they spoke to themselves. Lots of different ways that we can receive these messages and they get passed down into our system, into our neural networks of thought patterns that are more habitual and they can be epigenetic. So it's, it's very, very clear. From, What's epigenetic? Yeah, it's very clear from uh, once they mapped out the genome, they could they started to unblend and see well what gets passed down from grandparents great grandparents grandparent parent to child and and on and they could see that there were certain clusters of cells and certain clusters of uh, neurobiology that were passed down from difficult experiences like they they checked out in war times and see oh my god look there's a track of that coming all the way through the generations so that's very interesting information to know that i have one of my mentors get mentors get mentors get elders get people who walk the path and are further down the line to than you get mentors get a lot of mentors get as many if you find a mentor hang on to them praise them, do whatever you can to be with them because mentors are key elders is something that we've so lost in the way we are entrepreneurs and the way because of that, you know, survival of the fittest. And because of this kind of ideation on, you know, you have to be young and at it and independent, fantastic. And there's so much lost in that for all of us. We all lose out because the gift of elderhood is like people are further down the road and say, oh my God, I know that. Yeah, I've been bashed around there and here I am. And this is what I've learned from it. Get mentors, get as many as you can, hang out with mentors. It's a brilliant thing to do. So one of my mentors, um, he keeps on. So I, I bring my struggles and oh, this isn't working. And oh my God, I can't do this. And blah, blah, blah. And he what he does is he constantly brings me to, yes, David, we've been doing this for thousands of years. <laughs> we've been thinking like this for thousands of years. <laughs> You're not the first. 
because what I find as an entrepreneur and as a human, I can often feel I am the only one in this position and I am the worst or I am the da-da-da and the best. So to have that frame of the epigenetics, the, uh, the, the understanding and the insight that thought patterns are actually passed down through our genes. They're, they're, we inherit particular ways of feeling, particular thoughts, particular ways of uh, surviving, of coping. So, you know, these, it's really good information, number one, to kind of give yourself a break, <laughs> not to have, to have a morsel of compassion for yourself, which is no bad thing. It's kind of a superpower. Um, and to contextualize your struggles, your problems, and, and your automatic neurobiological responses so that you didn't just make this up. It's not just the, you, you don't have to self-identify. This is not, a, you know, a, the end of the story. The, one, of the one of the things about the uh, ventral part of the nervous system, when that's online, and you can do these simple uh, uh, polyvagal breathing exercises, which are actually ancient. They're pranayama breathing exercises. What they realized they did lots of neurobiological study where they, you know, they put those wires in people's brains <laughs> into their heart rate and everything and see how different breathing techniques would affect their nervous system and their thought patterns and what fired up in the brain. And they, they found about five different breathing techniques, which is very, very precise, like the five, two, eight, breathe in for five, out for two, or hold for two, out for eight, and, and a few others. And what did they find? Someone, someone saw this and well, hang on. They found that actually in India, there's, there's a practice called pranayama, which is a yogic practice, which is about 10,000 years old precisely match <laughs> the breathing techniques so this so epigenetics can be for good as well as problematic so in the in our genes we also get a lot of the goodness from from those who come before us so it's not just problematic that things are passed on you know these these things are, are known for thousands of years so the body knows it the body keeps the score and um, there's deep wisdom in there. So when we give some simple practice and resources, it's like uh, waking up a deeper intelligence that's already there. So being able to tone those things is the small practice. Um, I know Mario's here. He kind of likes to do exposure therapy. So maybe we expose ourselves in small little bits. Um, there's... Um, to these, we repetition, we practice these things, we're toning them, but some of them are just internal. So we're recognizing. And then the, one of the things that I love is that you, if I've had this old pattern, it is really insulated. It could be positive or negative, but it is really insulated. Can you, because this is the thing for me, it's those old stories. I know Vance here, she used to say that she was, um, uh, not a techie. She, she just had a bad relationship with technology, which she didn't, but you know, we tend to like it. We find the thing that we think is true. So she has rewritten this. It is not the, that is not a defining thing of her. I've done things like that for me as well, but that, that well-worn path that we tend to go to, right. You said that we, I think you, um, we fall back into that path, but we can, rewrite it, but we have to rewrite it 
and, and it can get thicker. It can get more insulated. Some of yeah. those stories that are negative need to be rewritten. Can you just talk a little bit about how that maybe plays into the uh, our cognition and our decision making and how as yeah. entrepreneurs we could do that? Because I know it's we got it. Uh, we're at time. So I want to just get that one okay. last question in. So, so when we have a strong experience of whatever kind, the nervous system goes boom, and, and that creates an imprint in our system. And then that uh, opens a particular neural pathway that says, when this happens, this is not su- this is not safe or this is successful. So it creates a, boom, a big marker, like a flag in the brain. So when another event that seems kind of similar it's happening. We slip into that flag. Okay, this is happening. We have confirmation bias. So when we already have an experience that's very strong and we have a belief about it, when we kind of sniff it, so I go, this is similar, like getting up on stage in front of people. When this happens, I'm bong. <laughs> then we have confirmation bias. What does that do? It makes the nervous system behave in a particular way that as if it's already happened. So like your friend, she comes near a computer. Oh, I can't do this. So the nervous system goes into the dorsal. Her system shuts down a bit. There's less oxygen going to the brain. There's less capacity for her to be in the prefrontal cortex. So of course she doesn't know what she's doing. <laughs> There's no space for her to be a beginner. There's no that, that beginnerhood. But one thing I would say to everyone who is an entrepreneur, um, start something that you're not deeply invested in, that will, that's nothing to do with your pay or your salary or that has nothing to do with your success as a human being just start something every year that you can be a beginner in this is really important because when you give yourself permission to hang out in something that you don't have a deep attachment to the outcome you can befriend the beginner in yourself you can get to know the little steps it takes if if like an animal in nature you know, tripped up and said, oh, I can't do it. That's it. <laughs> Just lie there and be dead. So it has to, you know, you have to fall down and get back up and find ways, fall off the bike, get by. Oh my God, thank God I have a helmet on or whatever it may be. So you have to have those moments of uh, falling out, coming back in. When a plane goes from Dublin to, where are you? I'm in Alabama. Okay. <laughs> if I go to Alabama, which I'd love to get to someday, hopefully. So um, the pilot is never, ever directly 100% on course. The pilot's job is to just do these little adjustments. So for the whole point, the whole purpose of the pilot is to do the adjustments, not to kind of stay perfectly in line, but to do the adjustments. It's the same as a human. When we're going towards our vision project, what it's never going to be a straight line. <laughs> the, the, the task is to recognize the places where we've fallen out, out of kilter a bit. What do we need to sustain ourselves and to say, well done, get, get the support we need so that we can reorientate in the direction again. So it's inevitable that we'll fall off, fall away, lose interest, get overstimulated, get understimulated. So all that is inevitable as humans. That's how we're wired. That's how our culture has <laughs> created those conditions that that's what happens. So that is not the, the point is uh, how we resource ourselves in the disorientation because you're, you know, you'll find your way back to the orientation when you can get resourced in the disorientation. It's the befriending the disorientation, befriending the not knowing, befriending the kind of messy bits 
the falling down bits. The more you can befriend them, the less need you will, we, you will have to go into them or the less um, that there will be a magnetic charge of, I don't want to go there, I don't want that to happen. That's a magnet for to create the conditions so that our confirmation bias will say, see, I told you, <laughs> if I did this, I'll go there. So they're magnetic pulls. So the more you befriend those areas, the less magnetic pull and the more you can magnetize towards what your vision is. I love that. Okay, so I want you to tell them what you're working on and I'm going to share your website, which is embodiment.ie, but it'll also be in the in the chat and it'll be underneath if you're watching on YouTube. But can you tell them what you're doing now? Uh, in the middle of a two-year somatic intelligence program for people to really orientate towards what matters to them and their vision and how they can build up resources and support structures. And we do this in a small group of guess what, between 20 and 30. <laughs> so we're looking to bring that to the States maybe in a, a year and a half, but also uh, shorter, shorter groups, which would involve... Um, being an entrepreneur and how the maps of neurobiology and systems theory, like internal family systems and various other models that can really help us sustain and stay inside and actually expand our window of tolerance and how we co-regulate, how we can, how we can be um, cultivate community so that we don't have to, we don't feel we have to go in this crazy solo journey. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally, I, I think that's what I love so much uh, about when we've talked, it is, I can tell I am made for community. You're made for, we're all made for community, but there's some people who enjoy it a little bit more than others. Right. So um, uh, extroverts might, uh, um, they in really enjoy and get fired up and introvert, um, is still loves community. They still love being seen and heard, right? They just are, they, they're fueled in different way. They recharge by uh, being alone maybe, um, but then oh, they, right, right, right. Alone is so crucial. But, and it's really, it's really how we story these things. Yes. I've, I've seen so many people saying like, Oh, I'm like, they, to me, it's like, you like ketchup mustard, that's what an introvert extrovert it's not it's just a thing it's not a good thing like if you're an extrovert or a bad thing if you're extrovert or not a good thing or a bad there should i don't think there should be it's just uh how you refuel your energy i think sure and i think we're all a mix of both absolutely i mean i definitely um enjoy my time alone. Also, I think it's really important john ingle said he would love to see you as a speaker on the calm app Oh, so, sounds great, John. I know that would be uh, a really good one. I love hearing you talk. You get uh, excited. I get excited. But I love having that science behind why we do go, this. And, and there's so much um, in it that um, in ourselves and our minds. And one of the things I love is that when we do talk to each other, whether it's a mentor or even just colleagues, it that that negative thought that maybe we're having, they can, can be like, what? No, I would never think of that. Right. Like um, it, it just helps to 
take us out of that silo or that vacuum, that aloneness when we're willing to be um, mm-hmm. in that community. I would love to think, uh, I don't know what it was a uh, hundred thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago where, where we were communicating, what sounds we were using maybe as humans in that, if we were constantly, you know, in um, saying, Hey, where, where are you? How far are you? But I know that some people, when they're like, when they can't, they're out of visual, they'll do something with their kids and they they make a sound and then their kid makes a sound back like a owl sound or a, you know, some sort of whistle or something. So that's what I can kind of imagine is that, um, and beavers are like that too. They are like such community people. They slap the water to protect the other, you know, the little rabbits and the fish or whatever, if there's some mountain lion coming in. But I love it. I'm excited. I can't wait. to. I can't wait for you to come to Alabama or Atlanta. Um, I will drive. Uh, but I would love I can't wait to see what what you'll be doing in the States, too. But I'm really excited. Thank you so much. So if anybody is watching underneath, it's embodiment, E-M-B-O-D-I-M-E-N-T dot I-E for Ireland, I believe. And yeah. um, and just David, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for doing camp and just thank you for giving your energy and your knowledge. This is the end of your day. And I don't know how you have so much energy at the end of the day, but I really appreciate it. And I, we had a bunch of people come. So I appreciate people coming from all over. You had London all and all across to Hawaii. So that was, you went pretty far, pretty far wide there. Can I say one last thing? Absolutely. Jen put in there, gives a new meaning of attention seeking. So what I leave you with is be curious about what you give your attention to. You have agency in what you give your attention to. And a basic uh, molecular level law of physics is energy follows attention. So what you place your attention on, your life energy, your the, the, the energy of yourself will follow where you give your attention. That's why thought is so powerful. So be curious about the stories you tell yourself, what you feed yourself, and what you what you tell what you story about community, about uh, competition, about being individual, and about failure and about success. Be curious. Listen. Have have a like like when you tune into. <laughs> so this, sorry, I know this has gone on a bit, but like when you um, uh, listen to a radio. Just check out what what are the stories that you're feeding yourself. And then actually you can choose what radio frequency you listen to. But but you can you can do that by hanging out with people that kind of give you instruments and a music that's a bit more affirming to your underlying goal rather than the the mini failures that you perceive that you're doing. I love that too. Jen says she loves that also. So I am so glad. Thank you so much, David. And thank you guys for all coming and just representing most of the whole United States we got. So I appreciate that. And David, just thank you. Thank you for your knowledge. I can't wait to have you on again when you've learned new things or you've implemented or tested and sharing all kinds of things. So I really appreciate it. And we will see you guys next week. Normal time, I believe. So I'll see y'all later. Thank you. Thank you so much.